I'm Frank Gallagher, host of Soundman Confidential. It's showtime. Plug in. Journalist and radio show host Billy Sloan has been at the centre of Scottish music for decades. He worked as a labourer in Glasgow before catching his break in journalism in the late 70s. Scottish bands like Simple Minds and Lloyd Cole and the Commotions were early discoveries for Billy. His late night show on Radio Clyde was required listening for the scene around Glasgow. Currently, he hosts a show on BBC Radio Scotland on Saturdays. His music interviews catalogue is huge. So plug in for my chat with the one and only Billy Sloan. And five, four, three, two, one. Good morning and or good afternoon, wherever you are. Welcome to Soundman Confidential, a podcast exploring the relationship between everybody, the band, the sound, and the audience. And this morning, from Glasgow, uh, we're going to be talking to Billy Sloan. Say hello, Billy. How are you, Frank? It's good to speak to you again. Always a pleasure. Aye, it's great, Billy. Um, you and I go back a couple of years. Um, we are that old. I remember actually once bumping into you when I lived in New York. I bumped into you standing on the corner of 57th and uh, and, and Broadway. And it was funny because a couple of days ago when I told my partner I was going to be talking to you, she says, that was the guy we met in New York. And she could remember it vividly. That's she says, that was the guy we met crossing at the lights in New York, Frank Gallagher. She'd only ever met you once. That's and uh, as a lot of people would say, you know, once you meet Gallagher once, you never forget him. So uh, she remembered it vividly, although I couldn't remember it. But she said, hey, we met him in New York. So she was absolutely 100% spot on. Going back to the beginning, because I don't know about your, your childhood. I met you as an adult. Um, well, kind of an adult. I, and I... What's how did you get get how did you get awakened to 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 getting into music and joining the circus? Well, it's a funny thing, Frank, because you know I've spent something like forty plus years as a music journalist and a broadcaster. But when it came to music, way back in the very early days, I was a, a real late developer. Now, when you think of kids these days, you know every kid that you know has got a music collection either on a phone or on a tablet or on some electronic device so you know kids have got you know music collections at a very young age but I never really bought my first record until I was 15 and the reason for that was quite simply that we we didn't have any record player or any kind of recording uh, device in the house so you know I would be at school and my mates would be talking about albums like you know every picture tells a story by Rod Stewart or Split by the Groundhogs or Babacombe Lee by Fairport Convention or the Yes album by Yes. And I really didn't know uh, what they were talking about. You know, the, the, the conversation kind of passed me by because, you know, this was in the days when people bought albums, 12-inch vinyl records, and, you know, they would kind of swap them and say, here, have you heard this one? You know, let me borrow your record and I'll give you a loan of that. And then they would swap them a few days later. And I wasn't really part of that simply because we didn't have any kind of a record player in the house because the, the, there was no real reason for me to buy a record because I had nothing to play on. But then, lo and behold, my mother went out and bought uh, what you would call a radiogram. You'll remember it. Oh, it was aye. like a kind of, it was like a piece of furniture. It was almost like a sort of little mini sideboard. And when you lifted up the lift in the left hand side, there was a, a record turntable which played records at 45 or 33 or 78 RPM. 
And then if you opened the cabinet on the right hand side, it was an empty, you know, cabinet where you could store your your, your LP records. And uh, she bought a, a radiogram just on a whim from a, a shop in Glasgow called Arnott's and Simpsons, a, a department store oh, that you'll remember at the aye. corner of uh, Argyle Street and Jamaica Street. And uh, that suddenly opened up a whole new world for me. So when I was 15, I went away to the the Boys Brigade camp. I mean, Americans listening to this will not know what the Boys Brigade is, but it was like the Scouts, only better. And I went away to the Boys Brigade camp in Rill in Wales. And I spent virtually my entire two weeks camp pocket money, you know, my you know my my, my fund for the two weeks holiday, uh, going into Woolworths, a big store in, in Rill in Wales. And I bought, I'm proud to say that the first single I bought was Won't Get Fooled Again by The Who. It was 1971 in the blue picture sleeve. And the first album I bought was The Who Live at Leeds, you know, with a kind of, mock bootleg sleeve and when you opened up you get the poster and you get the letters and you get the the bills for Pete Townsend smashing up his guitars and that kind of stuff and you know although I was enjoying my holiday I couldn't wait to get home to Glasgow to get these on the turntable and play them and for a whole you know maybe three or four month period um, they were the only two records I had so I kind of played live at Leeds I would play side one and then go up and change it over and play side two and then go up and change it over and go back to side one again that was the only record I had and uh, I I played them you know day in day out knew every note every word of lyric you know who played what where it was recorded who engineered it you know I, I read all the sleeve notes copiously and it was it was a revelation. Then that very neatly led on to going to my first ever gig, which was the twenty first of October, nineteen seventy one, when I went to see the Who on the Who's Next tour. They'd moved on to Who's Next by this time, and uh, it was the Who's Next tour, and I queued out overnight to buy tickets. I mean, you know, in, in this day and age, you would just phone them up and and buy them online, but in those days, you had to physically queue up. So I queued up overnight in the centre of Glasgow. I had to beg my old man because I was only 15 and he wouldn't let me stay out past midnight. And I stayed, you know, overnight in a sleeping bag on the pavement with my mates. And when the shop opened in the morning, we get tickets to go and see The Who. And then on the night when I went there, you know, it was it was my eureka moment, if you like. I mean, there was Pete Townsend and Roger Daltrey and John Entwistle and Keith Moon, you know, 50 feet away from me up on that stage playing. Uh, the first song I ever heard live was Can't Explain. The second song I ever heard was Substitute. And then in the set, there was things like Bab O'Reilly and Behind Blue Eyes and Won't Get Fooled Again. And, you know, they did an excerpt from Tommy. And, you know, from that moment onwards, and I still feel like that to this day, you know, there, there wasn't a enough time in the day, enough hours, minutes and seconds in the day to go to gigs and, and, and listen to records. And I'm pleased to say that after 40 plus years, of that, you know, I still feel like that. You know, I think when you get old and jaded and you've sort of been there, seen it, done it, got the T-shirt, you should just walk off into the horizon. But, you know, I still get excited buying a new record. I still get excited going to see a gig and I still get excited discovering new things. So that's what it all really kind of started for me. Ah, that's, that would turn your head. Seeing that, was it a Green's Playhouse? It was in Green's Playhouse, uh-huh. which was an old crumbling cinema, as you well know, at the top of Rent. I remember Street the smell. I remember the smell. And it was, it was the biggest cinema in Europe because it had a capacity of three and a half thousand people. And, you know, they would very occasionally do gigs in the place. And it was very kind of run down and tumble down. And because it was primarily a cinema, it didn't have a, a, a proper stage. So the stage was basically about 
25, 30 feet off the ground. So when the lead singer, in this case Roger Daltrey, was standing behind the vocal mic, you know, in the middle of the stage, he'd be looking out into the first balcony. Uh-huh. Because you know it was it was for a cinema screen. It wasn't wasn't for a, a gig. So if you were in the stalls, you were kind of looking up twenty five feet up at Roger Daltrey. But if you were in the balcony, you were level with him. And then if you were in the upper circle, you were looking down. But although it was a real kind of smelly, dirty, tumble down sort of badly repaired kind of place, it was the greatest gig I've ever been anywhere in the world. I mean, I remember Melody Maker. I think it was in the early seventies. They did a poll for some of the biggest artists, you know, the Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, The Who, Roxy Music, and asked them to choose their favourite venue in the world. And the overwhelming vote was for the Greens Playhouse, which in 1973 became the famous Glasgow Apollo. But it was a great place. I mean, the other thing was in the early 70s, um, I managed to get a job. I was still just a teenager, and I managed to get a job as a steward in the place, you never get paid for it, you know, all you got was a, a, an armband which said steward on it, and I had a torch, so when you used to up to dance to your favourite band, I shone the torch in your face and told you to sit down again, of course you completely ignored me, but although you never get paid for it, the great thing was that you got to see all the bands, so in those days there was three, four gigs a week, so in any given week you'd be going to see Rory Gallagher, followed by Chuck Berry, followed by uh, Elton John, followed by Roxy Music, followed by Status Quo, followed by Peter Gabriel Genesis. So, you know, I saw loads of bands way back in the in the early 70s, you know, when I started going to gigs, Aye. you know, under my own steam. And it was, it was fantastic. I mean, you know, even if it was a band you didn't particularly know much about or didn't particularly like, just the whole excitement of being part of the gig was you know, made it all worthwhile, and it was it was absolutely fantastic. I wish I could go back to those days. It was really magical. Uh, the last time I was in there, actually, it was in the the seventy mid seventies, and it was uh, I was mates with Status Quo with it with the lads. Yeah, and I was on that balcony. They used to put the mixer up on the first balcony. That's and, right. And when the band got going, the balcony would shake. I was phys- literally holding onto the mixing board to stop it sliding off the table. When my mate was mixing it, the, the thing would just shake. Well, they got a group of kind of scientists and engineers from Glasgow University who wanted to do an experiment, and they took all this equipment, I don't know what it was, up onto the balcony, and I think it was actually a status quo gig. And um, it might have been 76 when they recorded, they did three nights in October and they recorded live, you know, their first ever live album over that three night period. So it might have been then. And they took all this kind of equipment up onto the first balcony and they calculated, and I don't know how they did it, but they calculated that at the height of the gig when Quo or whoever it was were going crazy and the audience were jumping up and down, the middle of the balcony actually dipped by 18 inches so you could oh, feel it you could physically feel it going up and down oh, I, I and it, it went up and down by by 18 inches but it was it was amazing i mean another real memorable gig i went it was in 72 when this guy from america came into place first ever gig in the uk and i never heard of him before it was, it was alice cooper and he flew in uh, from america and they were trying to get him banned. You know, they were asking him questions in the Houses of Parliament, saying that, you know, he was going to corrupt the youth of the United Kingdom and, you know, they shouldn't let him set foot on, on UK soil. And he came in, and I had a ticket for the gig. The ticket was 90 pence, which I guess would be less than a dollar now in, 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 in real terms. 
And I didn't really know that much about them, but outside the gig, the, you know, everybody was trying to scalp us or try to get tickets, and everybody was trying to buy the tickets because the gig had been sold out for months. And there was a couple of guys who had worked in the oil rigs, and the guys always had loads of money. You know, they would be making you know hundreds of pounds every every week. And a guy offered me seven pounds fifty, which was basically, you know, seven and a half times the the face value of the ticket. You know, if I was selling my ticket, and I thought. You know, for £7.50, I can buy three albums and a single. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to sell my ticket. So I sold my ticket for Alice Cooper. And then I went round the side and a guy managed to force one of the fire doors open. And we all ran in. <laughs> so I got to see the gig and I got my £7.50. And of course, you know, you'd never seen anything like it. You know, Alice Cooper was doing the kind of West Side story, the gutter cats versus the Jets. And then, you know, at the end of the end of the show they put them up in the gallows and you know the drummer was playing the drum and you know the executioner pulled the lever and there he was dangling you know on the end of the rope you know you know in midair and then it went to black for a few seconds and then the gallows disappeared and Alice Cooper came back on in a, a white tail coat and a white top hat and sung elected I mean you'd never seen anything like it before in your life it was incredible and that was only one gig I mean he, he flew into Glasgow played the gig, I think it was November of 1972, and uh, he came into Glasgow, he played the gig and flew out the next day, but caused such a sensation that by the next time he came back, you know, Alice Cooper were a headline band, you know, all over the country, not just in Glasgow. Ah, uh, I, I I just talked to Susie Quattro, who, who I worked with in 1972, and... Uh, what tour was that, Frank? Oh, we were just getting going. Well, just well I, I saw them. I went to see seventy two. I went to see Slade at the the old Greens Playhouse, and um, uh, the, the 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 first band on was Susie Quattro. Just as Can the Can had been released, aye. Well, and she I, came I, on. I, you, know, I was I was there, but I can't really remember it. Well, she came on with sort of black leather, you know, one piece aye. suit. You know, looked amazing with the bass guitar. You know, a girl front a band you'd never really seen that before. And Can the Can had just been released. So about four or five weeks later, it got to number one in the UK charts. So they were first on and they played for about 35 minutes. I, I, and then I second on the bill, second on the bill, and I don't know if you remember, this was Thin Lizzy. And that was just about the time when Whiskey the Jar came out. That was their single. And a few weeks later, Whiskey and the Jar was in the charts. And then Slade came on. I don't know what album Slade would have been on, but they were a big, a big, big band and they were a huge band in Glasgow. So that was the very oh, first aye. time that I saw Susie Quattro, Thin Lizzy, and Slade on the same bill. I think, again, it was about less than a dollar to get in. The first wee band I, I, I got involved with, I, I, was, I wasn't even a roadie. I was, I was supposedly their manager. But, but uh, we opened for the in-betweens at the La Bamba Club in Falkirk. And wow. the in-betweens became Ambrose Slade, became... Slade. Slade. So over yeah. the years, and, and and they could really play. Those boys could play. So were they, were they, were they skinheads back then? No, 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 they were long. So Ambrose Slade was when they became skinheads then, wasn't it? Exactly. Now, you're talking yeah. about live. I was in a dressing room when they were Ambrose Slade, uh, and, uh, Ambrose Slade in, in uh, I think it might even have been at the Lyceum or somewhere down around Leicester Square. When I, and... Uh, they were playing two sets and, they, and I was in the dressing room talking to them and Chaz Chandler came in and managed them and, and started reaming Noddy Holder saying, you're out there singing with your eyes shut. He said, stop it. Look him in the eye. And Noddy said, why? And Chaz Chandler said, that's the difference between a ton of night and a grand a night. 
all right? Yeah. Look at me, and I, I never forgot that. A manager coaching a band, tell them, don't close your eyes when you're singing. And they were a, they were a great live band because by the time they hit Green's Playhouse and the Apollo, you know, Noddy Holder had the, the top hat with the, you know, the mirrored circles on it. And oh. I remember one gig, in fact, where uh, just before the tour started, um, Dave Hill, the guitar player, had fallen and broken his ankle or something. So instead of cancelling the tour, what they did was they got a big silver throne and he sat on the throne like the king and he played the guitar sitting in the throne and then, of course, you had Jim Lee on bass and violin and Don Powell on drums, but they were, they were a, a great live no, band. In fact, the second time I saw them, uh, there was a band supporting them and I'd never heard of them. You know, it was like back in the Greens Playhouse days, it would have been about 72 and this guy walked on stage and you could see that he was a bit kind of older than your average rock star. He was a, a man as opposed to being a youth. And he walked on stage. And in, in those days, if you remember, nobody was really interested in seeing the support band. You just wanted to see the headliner. So he walked on stage and glared at the audience, put his foot up in the front vocal monitor and glared at the audience. And of course, that was like a red rag to a bull, you know, three and a half thousand people. Get to you, yeah, yeah, shouting <laughs> and bawling. I mean, I've never heard abuse like it in my life. Never heard abuse like it in my life. And then he went to the back of the stage and he got a can of beer. And he opened the can of beer and instead he drank it, he poured it on his hands and used it to slick back his hair and combed his hair into a kind of Gene Vincent style DA kind of haircut. And then he put his foot back in the monitor again and he glared at the audience. Now, from the moment he walked on stage to this moment, it was probably about 90 seconds, which is a long time to be doing nothing. So if you can imagine the crescendo <laughs> of abuse that was coming from three and a half to get the fuck, yeah, 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 get fuck out. I mean, I've never heard abuse like it, right? And he just looked at the audience and he said, ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce you to my band, the sensational Alex Harvey band. And somebody somewhere, you'll know how they did it, but somebody somewhere pressed the button and it went, do, 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 do. And the band came walking on, you know, Sal Clemenson with the green clown costume and the white face makeup and Chris Glenn with the big blue leather cord piece and you know Hugh McKenna with a floppy hat and sort of smoking jacket and Ted McKenna behind the drum kit and they went out to the faith healer I'd never heard anything like it in my life <laughs> the next day I went straight out and went up to to listen records in Cambridge Street and I bought Next which was their second album at that time and they remain my all-time favorite Scottish band I just thought they were they were incredible but that was the first time I saw them opening for for Slade in 1972 so so they, they, they were the only band that I ever went to see who get booed on and get cheered off to such a hero's welcome that they could have an encore had there been time so oh, they yeah. get cheered they get they get booed <laughs> booed on and cheered off which was quite amazing brilliant brilliant uh and the reason I brought up Susie Quirtle was um, I got I got ill and and uh, went into hospital and the the Susie and the, and everybody went to America and did a six week tour opening for Alice Cooper. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the the James Gang were on some of them and ZZ Top were in the middle on some of them. So it was Susie ZZ Top and and I missed that tour and I was bailing. Uh, it was like, but I, I, I couldn't have made it anyway. You know, I had a wee medical. Well, 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 well funnily enough, about eight about eighteen months ago, I went to the GFT, the Glasgow Film Theatre in, in town, and they had a screening. There was a great Susie Quattro documentary film that just came out about eighteen months ago, and she turned up after it to do a sort of question and answer session with a 
with the audience. And she, she talked about that Alice Cooper tour as being a kind of a pivotal moment in her career. That was a kind of tour that really kind of turned the corner or helped turn the corner for and really kind of toughened her up because Alice Cooper had been one of the first guys to kind of give her a big break. And it was just great. You know, we all got to meet her and we got our autograph and we got a picture taken with her. She just looked fantastic. You know, there's only there's only one Susie Quattro. And she just, she was, she was sensational, really, really gutsy and really full of passion and commitment. And I, I, I loved her when I, the first time I saw her in 72 and I loved her even more when I saw her, albeit on a, on a cinema screen 18 months later. I just, I thought she was great. She's done some great records over the years, Devil Great Drive and, you know, Can the Can and, you know, all that kind of stuff. She's just fantastic. Really, really great. Getting back to you, uh, to, to your early days, were you aware of good sound and bad sound? Because, or were you just excited to be there at the time? I think it was a kind of combination of the two, because as I said earlier, you went to that first gig, the 21st of October 1971, The Who, and they had, um, you know, the sound guy was a guy that, uh, was it Wolfie, they used to call him, that, you know, worked with him, I think his name was John Wolfe, the guy with the shaved head. And he was almost as famous as they were. And you were kind of really aware that, first of all, they could play. I mean, you know, Entwistle was an incredible bass player. Townsend guitar style was unique to him. You know, Keith Moon was probably my all-time favourite drummer. And then you Daltrey. And although Green's Playhouse uh, was a real tumble-down old cinema, as I said earlier, it had great atmosphere. You know, it was almost, although it was 3,500 capacity, it was almost the most intimate gig I've ever been at because it was almost like a club gig when it was full. And the sound for that was great. And if you remember, um, Townsend at that time was kind of um, dabbling with synthesizers and there was a bit of, you know, synthesizer on Bab O'Reilly and particularly on, uh, you know, Won't Get Fooled Again. So when it came to play Won't Get Fooled Again, you know, they had that kind of synth interlude in the middle of the of the song, two-thirds of the way through the song. And, uh, you know, they had these laser beams coming out from behind the stage, you know, forming almost like a canopy over the over the, the, the audience. And then you had Daltrey sort of marching on the spot before he let out that almighty scream. And, uh, you know, Moon went into the drum fill, you know, which uh, he had Townsend doing the windmill guitar. And it was the whole package, you know. I mean, in those days, to be perfectly honest, unless you couldn't hear the singer singing or unless you couldn't hear the guitar player, you know, hitting his guitar... I wouldn't have known good sound or bad sound, but as long as you could hear the words and hear the music, that was kind of enough for me because you were so wrapped up in the whole excitement of seeing, uh, you know, your favourite band. Ironically enough, you know, um, just a few months after going to my first gig, which, as I said, was in October of 71, I went to my second gig, which was in February of 72, again at the Greens Playhouse, and it was free. And they were another band who had four really brilliant individuals who formed this incredible collective of a band. You know, they'd Paul Rogers on vocals and Paul Kossoff on guitar, Andy Fraser on bass and Simon Kirk on drums. And again, the sound was was great. I mean, I don't ever remember going to one of those very early gigs and coming away thinking I couldn't hear the singer or I couldn't hear the drummer or I couldn't hear what the guitar player was doing. Uh, but again, I think I was just so wrapped up in the whole excitement of seeing heroes on stage and people that I admired that would have kind of, you know, papered over the cracks. But, you know, obviously as as technology and as equipment has got better over the years, 
you know, the sound quality, you know, has improved from band to band and, and venue to venue. But I don't really ever remember, you know, going to gigs in the very early days and coming away thinking, you know, the sound guy wasn't he doing his job or they hadn't invested financially in the right equipment <laughs> to represent their music. I mean, it, it was it was more or less a sort of a whole package. You know, you, you could hear and see everything that you were meant to hear and see. And that was kind of good enough for me. Aye. Um, did... Uh because it was it was primitive, but it was really good back then. And everybody, nothing. There was a lot, and uh, there wasn't a lot of close mic and a gear, and maybe a couple of mics on the drums and and uh, and vocal mics, and everything else bled through the vocal mics, you know. But but, but you've also got to you've also got to remember. I mean, I was I was going to gigs as a complete you know novice. So when you saw Pete Townsend with those big sort of you know Marshall stacks, you know, you know, built up, you know. And, and talk to one another and then in fact the, the the second time I went to see The Who the first time was in October of 71 but they then, they then came back in November of 71 because the ticket sales had been so great demand was such that they were able to come back about six weeks later and he actually smashed the guitar and threw it you know into the audience and it landed you know on top of you know the row that me and my mate were and we were in the second front row and everybody was fine to try and get you know, about the guitar. My mate, in fact, actually was lucky enough to get his guitar strap. And, you know, just seeing all that stuff, because up until that point, you'd only ever read about it in the New Musical Express or, or Melody Maker, or maybe heard about it. You'd never seen it, you know, firsthand. But even to see something like that, you know, you couldn't understand why Townsend would smash a two and a half grand guitar. But that was just what he did and you know you see it was was thrilling it was absolutely incredible you know you you'd never seen anything like that before in your life you know you'd heard that he'd done it but you'd never certainly never seen that he'd done it and then when he did it you know you just couldn't believe it and then of course moon was trashing the drum kit and and all that kind of stuff so it was it was the whole package you know you just sort of went there and as i say it was a real eureka moment and uh you know, it, it paved the way. It changed my life. You know, the the reason that I was a, a music journalist and a broadcaster, and and was that was was down to that night. You know, had I gone to see a boxing match, I might have been involved in that. Or if I'd gone to see, you know, a, a, a great football match, I might have been involved behind the scenes. You know, in, in soccer in some way. But you know, going to the gig, you know, I would I'd love to have been a swivel-hipped, you know, long-haired, bare-chested rock star in the mould of Robert Plant. But, you know, I was realistic enough to know that I didn't really have the, the talent for that. So I wanted to get involved in the music business. So my way into the music business was through journalism. And that's how I managed to to, to, to get into it. And, you know, that that, that that was kind of good enough for me. And and did you, um, did you, did you ever... Uh get involved in the physical aspect of, of uh, bands, like hanging out, helping out, moving gear? Yeah, in fact, um, you know, I don't know if the people who are listening to this know that, you know, the reason I got to know you was when you were doing Sound for Simple Minds and, you know, they remain, like, for me and for you, really good friends, Jim Kern, Charlie Botchell. And, you know, it was only a few years ago when talking to Jim Kerr, who's probably one of my, my closest friends in the world, that, you know, I discovered that we, we shared something in common. And that was that when we were teenagers, 
you know, we would go down to the Greens Playhouse and if a band were coming up, you know, we'd say to the roadies, you know, do you need a hand loading in the gear? Now, they were never going to say no because another pair of hands was always going to be very welcome. So the deal was that if you gave them a hand in with the gear, you know, from the, the truck into the venue and onto the stage, they would maybe give you a pass. And if they gave you a pass, that was like the Willy Wonka golden ticket to go to the gig. <laughs> So, I mean, I remember rodeoing for the Rolling Stones on the Goat's Head Soup Tour, I think it was, of 73. And there was, you know, you were backstage in the dressing room and there was Keith Richards, like, three feet away from where you were and, and Billy Preston, who was playing keyboards with the band and also supporting them at that time. And, and there was Mick Jagger, you know, it was beyond your wildest dreams. You know, you'd only ever seen these guys on, on TV or on album covers or on posters or something like that. And then suddenly you were two or three feet away from them. So it was a good way of, you know, blagging your way into gigs and, you know, uh, you know, doing the old uh, roadieing thing. And in terms of performing, I mean, I remember there was a very famous music store in, 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 in Glasgow called McCormick's in Bath Street. Oh, and just about everybody from any band that you could name at one time would have bought a guitar or a drum kit or a bass from, from McCormick's. So I decided at one stage that I was going to be a rock star and I went down to McCormick's and I put a deposit, I think it was a £2 deposit, which would be probably a dollar fifty in your money now. Um, and I put a, a £2 uh, deposit on an Echo Ranger acoustic guitar and I was going to be a rock star. So because I was paying it up through something called higher purchase, which meant you just sort of paid it every week until the, the, the debt was settled, they sent a guy up to my, my house to make sure that I did, in fact, live at that address and I hadn't given them a, a fake address. And, and he, the guy was so stroppy with my mother that, you know, I marched down the next day and demanded my two pounds back. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I got the money and I went round the corner to uh, Jackson's the tailor and I put a two pound deposit down and I made to measure suit. So uh, my, my, my career as a rock star lasted for about five days. And instead of buying a guitar, I bought a, a suit instead. And, and with the benefit of hindsight, it was probably the it was probably the right move. I have to say. I I'm happy to say that I was never polluted with talent or ambition. You know. Um, no, but we 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 all stood in front of the mirror with the tennis racket and the oh, hairbrush. You know, uh, pretending we were. Cab you know, Peter Gabriel cardboard or, guitar. Or, or the cardboard guitar or a Robert Plant or you know, David Bowie or, 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 or somebody like that. So, you know, I'm sure everybody listening to this at one time in their quieter moments have had the tennis racket out and they've been standing playing air guitar, you know, along to their favourite their favorite album. Uh, well, I'm a wee bit older than you, and for me it was Tommy Steele. Tommy, Tommy Steele, Tommy wow. Steele, Tommy Steele and a TV show called 6-5 Special. Well, that was just just slightly before me. So just my first you. TV shows would be would would be Top of the Pops, which started in Aye. in sixty three. So in, I was born in fifty five. So in sixty three, I would be seven and a half, coming up for eight when Top of the Pops started. So that's that's what I would have seen. And jukebox jury when it started later, you know, when they had the you know the the celebrity pop guest sitting, you know, reviewing the week's new singles. It was all that kind of stuff. Aye, aye. Uh, six, six, six five special had some very radical stuff. They had a, 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 at that point. This was late fifties. They had jazz. They had yeah. a lot of jazz. And then Tommy Steele came along imitating Elvis. Uh, he was like, uh, you should look up. There's some clips of him on Six Five Special, and he was really good. And yeah, Lonnie, fact, Do I mean, I, Lonnie Donigan as well, another Glaswegian. 
about, about a year ago, I went on eBay and there was an old uh, Tommy Steele um, tour program for the 50s that I bought and it was in great condition and I bought it just because it looked great because I'm a bit of a collector and there was Tommy Steele. But, um, you know, I'd mentioned earlier Alex Harvey being my, my favourite band and I think it was 59, one of the ma major newspapers in Scotland, I think it was the Sunday Mail, ran a competition to find Scotland's Tommy Steele and Alex Harvey won it. So there's a famous picture in 59 of Tommy Steele with a sort of hair in the quiff and Alex Harvey with the hair in the quiff and they've both got an acoustic guitar and they're kind of jamming in a dressing room somewhere and, and Alex Harvey was crowned Scotland's Tommy Steele because, as you say, Tommy Steele was like Britain's answer to Elvis Presley back then. Aye, that's funny. I'll have to look that up as well. When you got a little bit more refined and you got into your, your writing and broadcasting journey, were there gigs where you now began to discern that the sound was shite, that somebody's not doing their job? Yeah, I mean, you know, you would you would, you would would go to a gig and, you know, if there was something distorting or if the guitar sound was too loud that was drowning the, the vocalist, you know, you, you had sort of developed a bit of a a musical palette by that time. So you kind of knew that, while you knew the difference between a good band and a bad band, you also knew the difference between good presentation and bad presentation, and that, of course, incorporated what it sounded like. And, I mean, when I think of, you know, the 70s going into the 80s, um, you know, we weren't, we hadn't reached, certainly in Britain at that time, arena rock. So, uh, you know, there was no such thing as going to a major arena with, 18, 20,000 people and watching a band. It was all shows that were basically in theatres. But having said that, you know, I remember seeing The Who in 76 at Celtic Park in Glasgow, which I think was the second stadium show I'd ever been to. The first one was in 74 when I got the train down to London and I went to Wembley Stadium and I saw uh, Tom Scott and the LA Express, the band uh, Joni Mitchell and Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young and that was the first time I'd ever been to an outdoor I, I, show. I was at that show. And the, sh and the sound there wasn't that great. I mean, I remember years later interviewing Graham Nash, and he said that of all the of all the, the shows they did run about that period, you know, that was one of his least favourites, but that's the one that's got kind of real legendary status because, you know, it was the first time that, you know, you'd seen a line-up like that uh, in Wembley Stadium. The, the sound wasn't great at that point because, you know, I don't think then sound guys because it was a whole new thing. We're really well enough versed into, you know, creating a good sound in a place that was essentially a sports stadium. So, you know, the sound would come out and it would bounce off, you know, the underside of the, you know, the roofs of the grandstands. And, you know, if you were standing up the back, you know, by the time the wind had caught the sound, you know, it had taken it. <laughs> it was too late. You know, all over the place. It was too late. And, and of course, there was, there was the delay, you know, uh, particularly with the, you know, the... The, the the bass drum sound there was a delay so a lot of the time when you were listening to it it felt as if you were listening to a really badly recorded bootleg and even if you think of bootlegs then you know when you were getting bootleg albums you know goodness knows what they were recorded on but the oh. sound quality and the gig was terrible and by the time it got to the bootleg it was twice as terrible so you know it was all very primitive but you know I would only mitigate that by saying that you know, it was new territory for everybody, the bands, the audience mm -hmm. and the sound guys, because, you know, you didn't have sort of knowledgeable sound technicians, you know, who really knew, knew their stuff because everybody was kind of learning on the job. 
And when you think of the gear that they've been in the 60s, you know, you could pack all the gear into the back of a small, you know, a transit van. You know, that was all. I remember interviewing Cliff Richard once and he said that when he went on on the road with the Shadows, they basically had, you know, two speakers, uh, one that they one that they would aim at the circle and the other one that they would aim down at the stalls. And that was it. You know, even when you thought of the Beatles, you know, there wasn't any in-ear monitors or on-stage monitors. Nothing. And the fact the fact that they were able to harmonise and be tight and be on time and get in and out of verses when, you know, they had 3,000 girls screaming at them as well as the fact that, you know, the sound was really primitive. I think you've really got to take your hat off to them because, uh, you know, they, they, they certainly <clears throat> achieved an incredible noise you know, and I use that in a very uh, wide term, you know, when everything was stacked against them. But, you know, as I say, nobody knew any better back then. Everybody was learning on the job. And then, you know, suddenly, you you know, if the Beatles were to play live now, you know, if you, you know, when you go and see the Stones now, you know, if you think of the Stones sound in a 50, 60,000 seater stadium now to what it would be like when they were playing the ABC and, you know, Blackpool <laughs> in the in 1963, it would be like night and day. But, you know, and, and I think that was a good thing because I think that, you know, you can say what you like about the bands from the 60s and stuff, but boy, could they play. They could play. And I they, think had that was they had to. They had to. They had to. You know, they never had any choice. There wasn't any sort of, you know, trickery. There wasn't any pressing buttons and firing samples and, you know, hitting a note on a keyboard and it would play something that would sound like you know, a brass section and stuff, you know, they were having every, every single note that you heard from that stage was played from that stage. And I think that's why, you know, those guys really were sort of incredible craftsmen in terms of, um, you know, just being pioneers of the music they were making and how they were, you know, presenting that music to an audience, you know, most of whom were seeing it for the very first time. Now, I know you would write about it, but were you ever inclined to go up to a sound guy at a show and say, what are you doing? Why is it so bad? I think I don't think I would have been brave enough to do that because, you know, whatever else he was, he was the professional Aye. and you were the kind of enthusiastic amateur. So I think you it would have taken quite a lot of bottle, which I don't think I would have had enough of to go up to a sound guy and go, look, that sounds terrible. You need, You really need to get that fixed. I mean, there was a couple of times I, I, you know, I helped some Scottish bands out in the very early days, and you know, you would just use the, the sound man from who was provided by the venue, so you didn't know what you were getting until you went there. And there was a couple of times when, you know, you would go up and say, "Look, you know, we should be hearing more keyboards here, or we should be hearing more vocals here," but you know, you you just automatically assumed that the sound guy was, you know savvy enough and professional enough to know the difference between a good sound and a bad sound Aye. so um you know you just tended to sort of uh you know leave it to him and unless it was absolutely terrible but you know if it was absolutely terrible you know usually the audience would would also let them know because there'd be a lot of cat calls and shouts of abuse and slow hand claps and hey we can't hear it you know and that kind of thing so um you know in in, in terms of sound you know unless it was really terrible uh, you know, you just had to uh, kind of go with the flow. Aye. Jim and Charlie told me. Jim told me. He said. He said. He said we were at the hydro, and I said I won't name the band. He said, but me and Charlie are sitting there going, "Can you hear the guitar?" And and and, and 
Jim says, I'm going up there. And Charlie said, no, 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 don't go up there. He said, and then they were at, me back. And then at the next gig, it was reversed. And, and Jim says, oh, turn it up. I'm going up there. I'm going up to say something. Yeah. And, and Charlie's pulling them back. Because... I mean, I, th- I, think, I think when people go to gigs now, you know, we're talking in 2020. I think when people go to gigs now, the expectation level is so much higher. Because if you go to a gig in a, a stadium, <clears throat> you know... You can't get away with wee rinky dinky tiny screens. You know, you need big giant, you know, whatever uh-huh. the equivalent, the modern equivalent of jumbotron screens are, so that you can see, you know, uh, the singer through the very back of the, the the auditorium. And you need a good sound and you need a good presentation. And I think, you know, as, you know, the, the music industry has grown arms and legs over the years, so has you know, stage and sound presentation. You know, you know, you know what these guys are like now. You know, you get into a, a stadium and it's the Rolling Stones or it's U2 or it's uh, Bon Jovi or it's, uh, you know, somebody like that. And, you know, and everybody who works on the tour is a professional. You know, th- there's no even any humpers anymore, you know, because no, no. It's, not enough just to, it's not enough just to be able to carry stuff for the van or the truck into the venue and, and plug it in. You know, these guys are are technicians now, you know, they're, they're, they're really kind of uh, got a lot of knowledge because that's just the way it's developed over the years. You know, when, when you would have started, it would just have been enough to get somebody that would be strong enough to sort of carry a, a speaker cabinet and, and wheel it in and mm-hmm. put it up on the stage and set it up. But, you know, the, these guys now are, you know, real professionals and, and, and you can see that, you know, I mean, people moan and groan often with some justification about the you know the 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 high price of tickets and in some cases the ticket prices are extortionate there's no doubt about it but on a lot of occasions every single dollar of that ticket price is up there on that stage i mean recent examples for me would be the the U2 Songs of Innocence and then the Songs of Experience tour you know with the big video screen that went the full length of the of the venue from at right angles from from the stage right out and the band are inside the video screen walking along the catwalk and you know i mean you know very, all that very kind of very stuff, clever all that stuff costs money another great example would be about i think it was about two or three years ago uh, the roger waters tour us and them you know you know where they had the uh, you know he was playing stuff from dark side of the moon and you had the moon you know floating out over the audience and you know the the inflatable pigs, and it was it was fantastic. Then you think of Arcade Fire playing in the kind of boxing ring in the middle of the 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 the, the, the arena, where um, you know the the audience three hundred and sixty degrees all around the stage. I mean, it was like something you'd never seen before, and 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 a more simplified version, but equally as effective would be the most recent um, David Byrne tour, the American Utopia tour. I saw that. Where he had a stage, where he had a stage with nothing on it. I saw it at the concert hall in Glasgow, and then he, and then he took it to the Hydro in Glasgow, which was the the arena venue. But it was better in the in the smaller theatre venue. Of course, that was the, that was the show that he then, you know, took a residency on Broadway, and you had nothing on the stage, uh-huh. no monitors, no speakers, no drum risers, no drum kits, not a thing. On the stage, uh, and I, it was. I, I talked. It was one of that. the greatest things I've ever seen. It was one of the greatest things I've ever seen. I mean, every young band should be made who's who's starting out should be made to sit down and go right. This is how good rock performance can be. This is where the bar is. 
and Aye. you've got to try and sort of aim above the bar because this is how great music presentation can be. And I know David Burns in a slightly different situation. He's got, you know, money behind him that he can do these fancy techniques and effects. But it was just so simple yet so effective. Aye. And it was equally as powerful as, you know, Roger Waters had every video screen and every bit of, you know, paraphernalia and, you know, floating moons and flying pigs and and all that kind of stuff, which, but it never detracted from the music. David Byrne had none of that stuff, and again, it never detracted from the music, but in both occasions and in both circumstances, it was two of the greatest things I've, I've seen in recent years. Just incredible, fantastic. Uh, I, I, I went, I went, I saw the Broadway show, I took my daughter, and, and uh, we went back to say hello after it, and, uh, and I said to him, he said, what, what do you, th-? I said, well, it, 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 it was great, but, but, I was just itching as a sound man sitting there to get my hands on the mix because I'm a terrible audience member. And I said to him, I said, first of all, I have a relationship with some of those songs. I was, I was in the room when some of those songs were born. Yeah. And, and I was involved in sculpting them live. I said, I want another go. And he just laughed. He cracked up. I said, I want another go at mixing it. But you're always going to be between you're always going to be between the devil and the deep blue sea because you're almost going to be like a a kind of award winning chef that goes out for his dinner to a restaurant and he's uh-huh. always going to be sitting nitpicking was the bread cooked today it was the bread baked today and was I, the I know what's in that know, I know what's in that sauce the, I know what's fi- in that sauce was the fish under the grill for long enough or he he could have left the vegetables aye, in for aye, two or three minutes so you you you're always going to be nitpicking that's the kind of well, not even, I mean, no, even nitpicking, it's just instinctive that every mixer does it his way. And that's, I suppose, I put my wee stamp on things. Because you can get two guys with the same band, the same yeah. equipment, and get different results in the same absolutely, room. Absolutely, absolutely. And somebody said, what, what's that? What is that? I said, it's me. And the way I, the way I, the, the way I, I, I feel a mix, you know, it's... Uh, the, the, what, what, what I loved about the David Byrne show, and I don't know if he did it in Broadway, but there was a bit that he did in Glasgow where he said, you know, halfway through the show, he said, you know, people think, you know, when we did this show in America, we started getting all these Facebook messages and tweets and stuff saying, you know, you obviously had a 10-piece band behind the curtains, you know, hidden away, playing furiously, he says, but, you know, or it was all on tape and you were miming. And he said, uh, he says, but that, that wasn't the case. He says, everything we're playing up here, we're actually playing. And then he went through it. He said, you know, on drums we have, you know, Joe Bloggs and the guy started playing the drums. And then just one by one, he went along the line. Right. He did, that on, he did that on Broadway. Everybody who had the drums and everybody who had the, you know, the, 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 the keyboard in the neck and everybody who had the bass and everybody the guitar. And it just built into this incredible crescendo. And, and, and I'm a sucker for all that kind of choreographed stuff where they're all marching in time and you know he's at the back of the stage one minute and he marches down like the Pied Piper because in the previous tour I don't know what the album was everybody and all the instruments were white everybody was dressed in white they brought it out as a DVD and they did that and it was it was all choreographed and I don't think you can ever get enough of that and especially when it's done to that degree of great artistic expression you know if it was just people dancing about the stage for the sake of doing it but you know Byrne is just a real innovator I don't think he's ever done anything which I've no found totally interesting and captivating because the first time I saw him was uh, 
was in 79. I get the train down from, from Glasgow overnight train. You know, we sat up all night, me and my mate, and arrived in London at six o'clock in the morning. And we went to Hammersmith Odeon later that night. It was 79. It was the Fear of Music tour. I was there. And, uh, and the support act was a then unknown up-and-coming Irish band called U2. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they, they were just about to release their debut album, Boy. And even then, although you'd never really heard of them, you just saw them and you just thought, this guy, Bono, whatever his name was, this guy's amazing, they're going to be huge. And then, of course, you know, uh, Talking Heads came on and played Fear of Music and it was all this kind of African influence stuff. It was just, it was fantastic. absolutely. And, you know, what made it even greater was that everybody regards David Byrne as being one of America's, you know, greatest ever and most famous rock stars. But of course, he's, as you well know, Scottish, born in Dumbarton in, Dumbarton in 1948, moved to Canada and then went down to North America with his father because, you know, they couldn't find any work. And he's, he's Scottish and he still has loads of, as you will know from doing the gigs, he still has loads of relatives and in Scotland, and every time he plays here, he's a guest list of about 50 people. As always, <laughs> aunties and uncles and nieces and nephews come out the woodwork and want to go and see their, their relative David. But, you know, just incredible stuff, really amazing. I, that, I remember that that Odeon gig. And you know what? Uh, Tina and I used to go, because uh, we didn't have a big guest list, and we'd pull... Do you remember who was first on? First on, I missed them. We arrived late, and, and it was a band from Edinburgh called Boots for Dancing. And then it was you two, and then it was Talking Heads. So how's that for a bit of pop trivia? But, you know, a, a little memory of that, Tina and I used to get tickets that we weren't using, and, and she'd put a hoodie on, and we'd go out, and I'd walk her out to the... Because the, the shows were all sold out. We did this all over the place, and not a lot of people noticed, but but uh, Tina and I would go out, and we'd just give tickets to the to kids that were standing outside that couldn't get in. Not not to the scalpers, not to anybody. We would yeah. take them and pass them out to the fans, to fans. And Tina wouldn't. Uh, she she had a heart of gold. She said, "Come on, Frank, let's go out." And she'd put a hoodie up. Nobody knew who she was, and there was already a support band on the stage at that point, you know. So yeah, anybody hanging outside was just was was stuck. And, uh, I, mean, and I, I, I still shows. do that. I still do that. On my radio show tomorrow night, you know, we ask a question each week just to get a bit of audience engagement. And, and tomorrow night is. Who's your favourite bass player, and what is the one piece of music which kind of sums up their unique talent? And you know, we've already had quite a bit of traffic on on YouTube. And I mean, and T- Tina Weymouth is one of the the names in the list because it was pretty revelatory back then. You're talking about 77, 78, 79. You know, a female bass player, and she wasn't just there for some kind of visual decoration. She was there because she was the best bass player that Talking Heads could recruit in those days. And uh, you know, she, you know, some of the bass lines of—I don't need to tell you—you you were hearing them every night. Some of the bass lines of those songs were just revelatory. And then when they went into Tom Tom Club, you know, the whole bass and the, the whole sound she made—you um, uh, know—was the whole foundation stone for for the songs. And, we, and when you think back, then you know there wasn't that many. You know, women as prominent as that, you know, you were yeah. talking about maybe Chrissy Hines, Susie Quattro, Gay Advert, you know, people like that. But it was it was great, you know, just to see a female bass player in a band kind of, you know, contributing as much, if not more, oh, than I... the male members of the band was 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 just was fantastic, absolutely fantastic. And you know, you know, she's now got sort of almost iconic status. And that 
does not come from just you know the image and how she looks that comes from the musical you know ability that, that, that she has because as i said you know tina weymouth was definitely the best bass player that talking heads ever had oh i without question without question i talk to them weekly to her and chris yeah every other day sometimes at the moment but chris is busy with his book oh, oh by the way there's a signed copy coming your way i can't wait to see it I can't wait to see it. It's, Thank it's, you. It's good. It's good. I, I should I should get it and I'll uh, I should get it in a couple of days and I'll forward it. On I was to you. I was telling somebody about the last time Tom Tom Club were in the were in Glasgow and you phoned up and went the band want to go somewhere really Scottish for their dinner <laughs> before the show. You need to come down and no, say no, hi. You, so I, I you know what happened? Well, I wanted to see you, but then at that point I decided to ditch the band because I see enough of them. You know, and uh, so me, me, you, and I think another mate of mine went down to the King's Cafe for a fish supper. The King's Cafe in Elm Bank Street. So I should just explain to people the King's Cafe in Elm Bank Street is this legendary late night cafe. So you go in and there's a counter where you can buy takeaway fish and chips or sausage and chips and that kind of stuff. But in the back, they've got sort of, uh, you know, seats, you know, a few tables and a few chairs, get maybe seat about 15, 20 people at the most. And I go down to meet Frank and I think Bruce Finley was there, the manager, the one-time manager of Simple Minds. And it was one of the most surreal moments of my life that I was sitting in this tiny little, pretty rough and ready cafe, eating fish and chips with the drummer and the bass player from Talking Heads. And I don't think the guy who owned the, the King's Cafe kind of realised the significance of the fact that he was serving fish and chips and uh, mushy peas <laughs> and, and brown brown sauce to the, the two people who played played in Psycho Killer and, you know, uh, all that kind of stuff. But it was it was definitely one of the one of the great surreal moments of, of my life just to to say hi to Chris Franz and, and, and Tina Weymouth was was a big thrill, a total thrill because I'm such a fan. Well, the the thing is too, because I tried to ditch them. I didn't tell them where I was going, and they walked in anyway. Yeah. They they just followed their nose, and and somebody must have said, "I go to the King's Cafe. They get you get fish and chips there." It was, and you actually introduced the band that night as well at that show at the. ABC. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I'm, however cheesy it sounds, I'm the kind of fan who got to live his dream. You know, I got to meet most of my heroes, and I've been to some of the the biggest and greatest and most famous gigs in the world. And, you know, I've been all around the world, you know, interviewing people and in, 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 in watching bands. And I kind of never take it for granted, Frank. You know, I mean, uh, I, just today I was interviewing a guy on a Zoom call from a, 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 an Irish band that I've been kind of flying the flag for called Fontaine's DC. Oh, they did an I, album out last year called Dogrow, which a lot of people, including myself, voted the album of 2019. They're just about to release a new album called A, a Hero's Death that comes out next Friday. And I was interviewing the guy uh, on the, on Zoom today because obviously he's in London and I'm in Glasgow. But I sat up to, you know, one in the morning, half one in the morning, doing all my notes and doing all my research and getting all my questions organised. And, you know, five minutes before I went to interview him, albeit that he was 450 miles away, I still got a bit kind of nervous because it's you know when it's somebody whose music you admire and you're a fan you know you know you never take it for granted and i've been lucky you know over the years i've you know i've interviewed some of the the guys that wrote the book you know it's, it's never a chore to sit in a room with keith richards or sit in a room with mick jagger or ronnie woods or charlie watts or david bowie or elton john or rod stewart or paul mccartney or bruce springsteen or neil diamond or Aye. tina turner or paul simon 
and you know, he's sitting in a room with, with guys that, you know, some of whom you've had their, you know, that the, 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 on a poster on your wall. And, you know, in the case of The Who, it was the first record you ever bought. You know, he'd suddenly be sitting in a room with Roger Daltrey or Pete Townsend. I mean, it's it's beyond your wildest dreams. I mean, I'm a big boxing fan as well, so I've been lucky enough to have interviewed Muhammad Ali and Smoking Joe Frazier and Sugar Ray Leonard and Iron Mike Tyson. I mean, you know, it's oh, yeah. never a chore sitting talking to the greatest boxer of all time or, you know, Mick Jagger. It's... it's or, for Paul McCartney to sit and tell you what it was like sitting at the kitchen table in his father's house writing songs in the early 60s with John Lennon I mean it's it never seems like work it, it, it always seems more like a kind of hobby and, and I'm glad to say that even after 40 plus years it, it remains that way for me and on that note brilliant 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 alright my son thanks very always much always a pleasure Frank and good luck to you continued success Hey, thanks for plugging in. We can't do without you. And if you can, please consider supporting the show so that we can keep it running through 2021. Go to our website at soundmanconfidential.com to find the link and to check out our amazing upcoming guest list. Soundman Confidential is produced by Alan Black and Chet Bentley, web designed by Adelaide Bell, original music by Paul Westwater, and publicity by Paddy DeVries at Devious Planet Media.